Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. Today we welcome back uh, the eminent archaeologist and Egyptologist, Dr. Colleen Darnell. We're going to talk about uh, vintage clothes, which is one of her passions, uh, archaeology, Egyptology, which is also a little Agatha Christie because I can't stay away from it, and a bunch of other stuff. Uh, The show is a recorded show, so please don't call in. And here's Colleen. Hi, Colleen. Welcome to the show. It's wonderful to be here. It's great to have you back. It's been a while. It has, but I'm really looking forward to this again. Thank you. We had a good time. Oh, absolutely. I get to Christie. So many fun topics. I know. Uh, well, you, that's like one of my passions, so thank you for <laughs> indulging me in talking about it. <laughs> that was great. Um, so, uh, you've been on the show before, but um, I have new listeners. Could you tell a little bit about yourself so they know who you are? Um, I've basically told people who you are, but just give your version. <laughs> Absolutely. So my name is Colleen Darnell. I have a PhD in Egyptology from Yale University, and I am an Egyptologist. So I spend much of my time translating hieroglyphic inscriptions and writing about all kinds of events and literature in ancient Egypt. My most recent book I co-authored with my husband called The Ancient Egyptian Netherworld Books. It came out in October of 2018, and it's the first complete English translation of the hieroglyphic text in the Valley of the Kings, so at about 800 pages. So that was, that was a really awesome, awesome project. And working on quite a few additional articles and different investigations into texts now. And in addition to my scholarly endeavors and teaching art history, I also have an Instagram page, Vintage Egyptologist, where we combine our interest in both vintage fashion and Egyptology. And I'm super excited about our new YouTube channel, also called Vintage Egyptologist. Cool. Um, well, first I want to find out about how your Nile cruise went last year. So it was fabulous. We did two cruises in 2019. One was in the summer and the other was in December. And both times we had spectacular vintage groups and had a blast sailing between Luxor and Aswan, staying on the steamship Sudan, which is from the 1920s, very possibly the ship that Agatha Christie was on when she started writing down on the Nile. And it is the set for the David Suchet Death on the Nile that came out with BBC in the Poirot series, which actually John and I have been watching from season one. So that's really cool that the Steamship Sudan, being the only vintage steamship still on the Nile or in any river in Africa, it has both this historic sense and this ongoing tradition of being 
way to sail on the Nile in, in true vintage fashion. I have a piece of movie history for you then. Did you know that the first the movie version with Peter Ustinov was also shot on that ship? Actually, it was shot on another slightly smaller Thomas Cook steamship. Oh, because he, he actually, um, David Suchet said that it was the same one. Oh, I'm, that's why I said that. Really? <laughs> yeah. Well, you can actually see it's, it's a slightly smaller, uh, different ship. Oh, really? In the 1978. I believe it's 1978 is the first movie. I think it was shot in 78 and released in 79. Okay. Yes, so it was the same vintage Thomas Cook steamship, but not actually the steamship Sudan in the earlier movie. Oh, that ruins everything in my imagination. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Normally, it wouldn't it wouldn't matter one way or the other, but this is something I've I've pretty extensively researched. Oh, just blew it all up for me. Oh well. <laughs> but um, no, I just love both. I, if people don't understand, I can love different Perot's, and I actually love both David Suchet's passionately, his, his character of Perot, and I love Peter Ustinov. They're totally different, but I love both of them. <laughs> They're both great, and and I think it's fun that the role lends itself to some pretty different interpretations. Oh yeah, yeah, and I and it was really uh, interesting because, uh, I mean, physically, Peter Ustinov was nothing like Perot, but he had the sparkle and he had the the uh, different kind of uh, things that made Perot Perot. So you could buy it. Easy. <laughs> you know? Well, and also speaking of the original movie, uh -huh. For the longest time, we thought that some of the interior of the old cataract hotel in Aswan was used in the movie because the exterior is, in fact, one side is Luxor and then the, the interior garden view is Luxor and then obviously because it's in a spectacular natural setting in Aswan, the exterior facing the Nile is then used for the old cataract, which it actually is. And we always thought that some of the interiors were shot in the hotel, and they actually weren't. They're a soundstage recreation, mm -hmm. quite accurate in some cases, of the interior of the hotel, but the interior of the hotel is not actually used. Yeah, uh, they did that and the... Um the uh, Swan oh, uh, was Ramsey's blanking out. Abu Simbu. Um, that was also a complete recreation of it. That was, they were not there. Because um, <laughs> I think they were still moving it or something. You know, moving it up because of the, the river. I mean, not the river. You know, the dam that they, they had to move okay. everything up. I think they were still in the midst of that project when they shot the movie, so they recreated it for the movie in, at Pinewood. <laughs> hmm. I, that I would have to investigate. I, they used a lot of scenes around Luxor, for certain. Oh, yeah. That was there. You could tell. <laughs> <laughs> 
But now I'll have to go back and rewatch the Alphys and Belsie. Yeah, it was like um, they. If you look at it, you can see that the um, when they show Abasumbu, it was one shot, and, and then there's the shot of her. But I mean, they're never going to allow Mia Farrow to walk on top of it like she did in the movie. That had to be a soundstage. <laughs> it's, it's like it's like the scene on. Um, North by Northwest, where Cary Grant and Eva St. Marie are hanging off, I think it's Lincoln's nose, or George Washington's nose. I don't think they would would actually allow actors to hang off the presidents of Mount Rushmore. Yeah, that's a good point. Movie magic. It's really interesting. Um, but yeah, just I love that stuff. Just make I love I love to try to figure stuff out. I love behind the scenes. Um, but and I just and I think that one of the reasons that I fell in love with um, archaeology was because of Agatha Christie. Probably because of her work with her husband. Her, her stuff was so authentic. Um, I mean. Even friends who are archaeologists have told me, and I think you agree, last time, her stuff is real there. You know, she has it. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And as I mentioned last time, Death Comes is the End. It's like, oh. I I think the best novel set in ancient Egypt. And hardly anybody's ever read it. I mean, you talk to an Agatha Christie fan and they've read Death on the Nile and Murder in Mesopotamia and all these other and Appointment with Death and all these other stuff but they've never read Death Comes in there and I'm like you've got to read Death Comes in there because it's so amazing <laughs> I would love to see a movie adaptation of that oh wouldn't that be great particularly if they hire me as a consultant <laughs> oh yeah yeah you and your husband you should work it <laughs> <laughs> when movies that would be awesome. John and I would love to consult on on that movie set. You know that she, um, even though she's married to an archaeologist, her, one of the, his school friends was an Egyptologist, and that's who helped her with all the research for that. Yes, that that was gone. Um, Professor Gunn, yeah, who did a lot of the original translations. Yeah, I mean that's just amazing. And the way she made it so human, you know, that could have gone another way. Um, mm-hmm. But she did such a beautiful job on it. Although, speaking of shout-outs, uh, there's a novel coming out this year, debuting in the fall by Jody Pinko called The Book of Two Ways. And John and I were consultants for that novel. So it's set in modern times in, in the last 10 years rather than in ancient Egypt but it to incorporate absolutely fantastic Egyptological detail cool so it's for pre-order Hi, highly recommend it what, and can you say the name again The Book of Two Ways it sounds interesting it is and is it, it's already available for pre-order it is cool yes. okay I'll get it um <laughs> <laughs> I love that stuff. I and well, I'm a book 
fiend, so I read every... I, I'm not only write, I read a lot, and I, I love books. I just think they're just... I always thought when I was a kid, because I was, I was always a new kid, so I always thought books were the great escape. You know, um, you go, you can go anywhere, be anything by reading a book. And to me, it was better than a movie because it was my imagination of it. I don't know. How, do you think that way? Or? Oh, definitely. I, I completely agree. And I, I do like reading novels that have been adapted into movies and comparing and contrasting. But there is something special about a book where the characters just live in your imagination, and, and you get to decide what they're wearing and and how they're expressions or appear. And it's also interesting when you, you were talking about comparing. I am pretty fair about that. I really, I don't go, uh, excuse the term, mishugana over it because I know a lot of people go crazy because you are a fan. So, like, say something like uh, one of the pros with the any of the new ones aren't perfectly like the book. If you look at her plays, when she adapted her plays, she was ruthless when she adapted her plays. She was ruthless. She didn't mind if she did it. She just didn't want someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just, it, it, like, um, Toward Zero, totally different, or Five Little Pigs, completely different in her play than in the, and Murder on the Nile. I actually, I acted in that one. Um, I was kind of, I was kind of disappointed that Perot was scooped out of it. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've um, ever seen any of the plays, but they're very different. <laughs> I actually haven't, so that, that would be something to check out. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to see a play of uh, the, I can't remember what she called the play because it's a different name, but the it's a play version of Five Little Pigs, um, because when I read, the, I, I was like kind of like when I read the beginning, they gave little explanations, and I saw that uh, Perot isn't in it and all this other stuff, and I'm like, oh, and they, they changed some of the the theory of it, and I'm like, I don't know, but I read it. It's actually amazing. It's so good. I want to see that as a play. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have a, a YouTube page that you were referring to before, and I have seen it. It was really cool. Thank um, you. You're welcome. Um, there was two questions I have. One question was, um, how did you get all this text in your house? <laughs> Is that part of your teaching text? I mean, you had real scrolls and pepperoni and all that stuff. Where did you get that? Is that some part of your collection, or did you borrow it from your university? <laughs> so those are just published books. And what we did is we will be looking, for example, at the publication of the so-called torn erotic papyrus and we have the book in our personal library and then the Egyptian Museum in Turin has made available for use uh, 
not quite public domain, but Creative Commons use. And it's really great to be able to pull high quality, high resolution papyrus images from their database and then oh. put those into the video. So that's how we were able to do it, is that we're looking at a modern publication of the papyrus, but then bringing in the actual papyrus image for the videos. Okay. And the Metropolitan Museum of Art has made so many of its pieces public domain in very high resolution photographs. So that has been priceless for illustrating the first video on cat humor in ancient Egypt and certainly for our next video uh, and many more to come. I, I think it's so cool. Um, I told you privately, I actually pulled out some of my old textbooks from when I was taking archaeology. I was trying to look at your page on hieroglyphics and my old textbook on hieroglyphics and see if I can remember how, to, how, how it works so far. I'm not doing very well, but I'm trying. <laughs> and that is true. As, as we do additional YouTube videos, I'm also rolling out relevant posts on how to read hieroglyphs which is uh, our other Instagram account. So John and I, mostly our main account is Vintage Egyptologist, but then we also do how to read hieroglyphs that are kind of more specific language-based and really get into some of the details of the language and grammar and signs. Is it bad that after all these years, the only thing I can really do and figure out are cartouches? I cannot figure out the actual hieroglyphics uh, <laughs> on a wall because <laughs> I, I actually have watched some shows where I took pictures from my screen and then put it next to the book and try to figure read it myself I can do the cartouche mm -hmm. but I cannot do any of the other stuff at least not yet I'm trying <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult and it takes such an investment of time for some of the initial memorization and learning the grammar, so. Okay, so I'm not dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I just think I'm going, or, or getting old. Because um, <laughs> when I was taking the classes, I got it so quickly, and now uh, I'm in my 50s. And all of a sudden, I, it's not as quick as it used to be. Um, <laughs> Is that sad? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think absolutely you could do it. But I love it. I love that stuff. And I also love your um, your vintage uh, site. Um, you had a little um, interview the other day with a vintage store owner, and I really enjoyed that. How does someone... Oh, yes, that, that was a live Instagram yeah, it was, it was yeah, great. Yeah. Cool. I did an uh, interview with one of the owners of a vintage shop in Manhattan called Morphew. And it was great because John and I were discussing how to pick out and style vintage clothes for the summer. Yeah, that was really cool. I mean, I have very few. I have a few pieces, 
but um, mostly hats and gloves and purses, but I don't really have clothes clothes. Um, <laughs> so I would love to have something, but I'm, I'm not the size, the size of the period I like. I'm too big. <laughs> oh, vintage clothes comes in all sizes. But every, it really does. Really? Because every time I've looked, it's always size small, size small, size small. Like, oh. The wonderful thing about Etsy and having so many vintage dealers is that you can find a range of sizes for vintage clothing. I work with a dealer, uh, Amy. She owns the shop Wildfell Hall, and I do a lot of her lookbooks. And now that we can't all get together with one of the photographers, uh, Rose Callahan, who I've worked with a lot in the past, she's been sending pieces to us in Connecticut, and John and I have been doing the shoots uh, because John's an amazing photographer. And it's a range of sizes, even with just the, some of the smaller collections. I love, I, I have, well, I have purses from the 20s from my grandma, from the 40s, 50s, and 60s from my mom. Um, I have some, I had a lot, I have a lot of gloves. I mean, my mom hated gloves, but she had a whole lot, and my grandma had a lot, and my, I actually, my hands fit in my grandma's because I have tiny hands. Um, yeah, and the, um, and she has evening, black evening gloves. She has the little tiny, little tiny white gloves that proper young lady wears, and I have all that <laughs> That's the kind of stuff I have. <laughs> I really love wearing hats and gloves. I mean, hats always, always. And that should really come back. I'm, I'm all for hats making a complete comeback. Oh, yeah. I love, I've loved hats my whole life. Um, I fell in love with 1920s stuff. Well, first Agatha Christie, but then I started watching a series when I was a kid called Partners in Crime. It was the Tuppence and Tommy book, Partners in Crime. And I loved Tuppence. I loved her clothes. I loved everything about her. And that's when I fell in love with getting hats. I, I, I started buying hats because of Tuppence Beresford. <laughs> 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 uh, and the, when I finally got a hat with netting on it, I was so excited because <laughs> you couldn't. It was it was the seventies. You couldn't find them. Um, <laughs> I think it was like the eighties when I finally found. It was a really cute hat, black hat with black netting. I was like so excited. <laughs> but um, what was your? Uh, take on how something, I mean, not what was, what is your take on how someone can get started doing vintage? Should they start like me with like accessories or should they go right for the clothes or, or how was the best path? I definitely agree that starting with accessories can be good just because you don't have to then worry too much about fit. Obviously, gloves, but hats you can measure the circumference of your head yeah. and shop online for hats pretty successfully in a way that's much more difficult than clothing. So in normal times, I always recommend going to your local vintage store, both to support local businesses and 
because that way you can try things on and get a sense of what fits, what fabrics and styles you really like. And now, unfortunately, that's on hiatus at the moment. Yeah. But I think shopping online, especially through Etsy and especially with really good dealers, can be very successful. You just have to double, triple check your measurements. And I always encourage people to reach out to the dealers, ask a couple of questions or get a clarification on a measurement. And if you start with more recent or simpler pieces, then you can build up a wardrobe even without a whole lot of of expense. And one of the things I just love about vintage is how it's not using any additional resources. And in 2019 in particular, I was listening to a number of podcast interviews with people writing about the horrors of the fast fashion industry, both mm. for the people who work in it, as well as the materials and the resources that it wastes. So I think vintage, even if you're just going back to the 90s, it's going to be a higher quality fabric and you aren't polluting and you're not giving money into an industry that is exploiting workers in other parts of the world. So I, I really like that component of vintage and you don't have to, in fact, I recommend not starting with the 1920s because there you really do have to know, is it going to hold up to wear? And it tends to be a very different price point, but you can get 60s or even 80s does 20s style that have dropped waist, that have some of the flourishes of 20s dresses, but you're wearing something that's much more recent, and that is going to be a much lower price. Yeah, 60s are affordable, because I have some of those. I love my 60s stuff. <laughs> and I often do that where if I'm going out to a museum or doing an event, I will wear a 30s knit dress, but for example, right now, just because we've been working from home and I've been doing some cleaning and cooking, I'm wearing a 1970s knit dress. But virtually the same color scheme as one of my 30s dresses. So that is, I think that's the real key, is get started with something more recent, but that is possibly of an earlier style, if that's where you would ultimately want to go. Awesome. My mom always said that um, nothing is new. Um, when <laughs> when styles started coming, like when I was a teenager in the 70s, um, and a lot of uh, 1950s styles were, uh, it, I mean, there was a lot of stuff that was taken from the 60s and the 50s. And she's like, I used to wear that, I used to wear that, I used to wear that. Oh, my God, they stole that right off of a movie star. I mean, my mom, she was like, there's nothing new I especially purses and hats my mom was an expert and she was like um, when they started doing two-tone shoes I think it was like the 80s she goes oh my god they brought two-tone shoes back I love those <laughs> <laughs> well and even in even in the 1920s the the rope to steel they're taking that silhouette from the 18th century exactly 
<laughs> and also because of um, uh, even further back your period of ancient Egypt. I mean, uh, because of King Tut, a lot of stuff that they had, the Bob, a lot of the stuff that they had was from the uh, ancient Egypt because of King Tut. <laughs> um. I have to ask you this because I'm actually become more and more passionate about this. Do you have any interest in Hellenistic Egypt, like Hypatia and stuff like that? And what do you think about Hypatia? Because I think she's fascinating. She really is a fascinating character. And it's funny talking about history and movies is now I can't think about Hypatia without thinking about the movie of Gora. Gora. That was such and a good movie. So <laughs> it's funny, even having read historical work about her, I, I just go right, right to the movie, uh, aesthetically speaking. And I think it, what's especially interesting is how multicultural Alexandria was. Yes. And the population just came from so many different places, so many different religions and languages, and I think it was that rich tradition going back to the Library of Alexandria, but certainly continuing through the Roman era in terms of Alexandria being a center of learning. So that, to me, is what is really fascinating about her story, and that her murder and, and how that really relates to this increasing intolerance mm. as we move further forward in late antiquity and the rise of Christianity and just how civilizations go through these cycles of tolerance and intolerance I think is, is really interesting. They said that she died a witch's death which I think is so unfair um, and, and yet you think about it, that's how any intelligent woman was killed in um, Middle Europe, too, during the, the burning time. Um, that they, anytime someone was smart and a woman, that it's, they seemed to have been a target. Mm -hmm. And she was certainly smart and, and a woman. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's also interesting to look at other saints that have very similar stories, uh, such as St. Catherine, and the idea that she was so much smarter than the court philosophers, and it is because she could win any debate in favor of Christianity that she was put to death, according to the, the martyrdom traditions and, and records. So. That, and that's, I think, a really interesting flip side than the Hypatia story because it is a, a Christian woman, but also highly, highly intelligent and challenging the worries of the time. I think if it's interesting how many women's histories um, are com getting reflected now. Um, the, the, there were so many brilliant women who had such an effect on history and then were buried because they were women um, and and now it's been coming out really strong do you, in movies and books how do you feel about that I think it's obviously a very important corrective to to how scholarship's been done and I think I pointed this out last time with hot chested as well 
And I think we also have to be sensitive to overplaying the gender aspects and seeing these great women of history as great individuals in history. Yep. We don't let the fact that Hatshepsut was a female king override how she was just a really awesome king of any gender. And I think that's important to put it within a larger historical context, even beyond writing more specific histories of, of women. And she was a highly successful king. All her campaigns were successful. Yes, so she did some amazing monument building and her mortuary temple in Dar Bahri, having absolutely massive obelisks quarried at Aswan, and it is a, a golden age in, in ancient Egyptian history. It is. I, I'm, I still think that is the prettiest temple of all the temples I've ever seen in ancient Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> it really is remarkable. I've never been to Egypt, but I've, like, you know the, you, you can get the uh, thing where you could bring it up and you can, like, kind of walk through the different temples and stuff online. I've done that a few oh. times, and that was one of the ones I did that to. It's so cool that you can do this. That's awesome. And because Egypt is not able to be a tourist destination at the moment, um, right now in, in April of 2020, the Ministry of Antiquities is releasing incredible 3D tours of ancient Egyptian monuments. Yeah, there's there's a whole slew of them I want to see, that there's new ones I want to see. Just, I just love that. I mean, that was not available when I was studying archaeology. <laughs> 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 I think that's cool. Um, you and your husband are amazing. Um, what is your latest project that you are working on as archaeologists? And could you tell some of the stuff that you two have discovered so people get an idea of your um, your past and what you're, you're projecting for your future? Oh, definitely. So in terms of the work in Egypt, we're working on publishing rock inscriptions that we have been both discovering and recording inscriptions that have already been discovered as well in the area of El Kab in Upper Egypt. It's about two hours south of Luxor. And the most exciting discovery recently was in May of 2017 when we found the oldest monumental hieroglyphic inscription. That and is so, so cool. It's from Yes, it's from about 3,250 BCE. We can date it paleographically, basically comparing the writing style. And up until that point, the writing of that date, the earliest hieroglyphic inscriptions, were only about a centimeter or two high from a tomb at Abydos, the tomb of a king whose name is probably Scorpion. I don't know for certain if that was his name, but that at least seems to be the designation of the king buried in the tomb. Cool. And to find a rock inscription that is then 50 times bigger, because some of the hieroglyphs are 50 centimeters in height, it was just amazing. And so it's been really fun assisting John with those publications and then just seeing how that's made such an impact. 
impact in, in the field of Egyptology. Is that the same scorpion king that was in the legend? So the movie that came out... I'm not, yeah, I know about that. Yeah. Uh, actually, there's no relation to anything historical. No, no, I wasn't even referring to him, but... <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I, there is a legend of it, and I know that I've seen other archaeologists trying to discover that, whether it was true or not, and that's what I was trying to find out about. <laughs> oh, I, was, I wasn't sure what, what legend you were referring to. Ah, uh, no. Yeah, that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> um, basically that uh, there was. Uh, I think they they said there were three scorpion or Scorpio or whatever kings of ancient Egypt, and that they each had a like the upper, middle, and lower kingdom, and that they there were different. Uh, power and it was at the same time and they were like earliest rulers that's the one I'm talking about so King Scorpion is the first king it seems of something we call Dynasty Zero which is a very awkward term but because Narmer is the first king of the first dynasty he unifies Upper and Lower Egypt and those are really those are the, the two parts of Egypt that are incorporated into the theology of kingship in ancient Egypt. They always talk about upper and lower Egypt. And Narmer is the first king to unify them. And his famous palette is in Cairo. That was actually discovered pretty much across the river from El Cobb at a site called Hierocompolis. And Scorpion then seems to be the first ruler to unify upper Egypt. And some archaeologists believe that there's two kings named Scorpion, but it seems like there's actually just one. Okay. So he does come from this time right when writing is invented. Writing may very well be invented during his reign. That's really a cool thought. That has been increasingly certain historically. That's really cool. I think that's a really amazing thought. Of all of the um, archaeology that you've discovered as an Egyptologist, is there one thing that you're just really passionate about? I mean, in terms of what I publish, a lot of my research has to do with ancient Egyptian religion, particularly beliefs in the afterlife and funerary texts. And that was the topic of my dissertation. I was looking at copies of the Netherworld books, so the texts that are in the royal tombs in the Valley of the Kings, but a thousand years after they initially appear. And how, even though a millennium has passed, they're continuing to use these texts. And that's been really cool. And in terms of the archaeological work, when I did a survey near a site called Walla about half an hour, 45 minutes, depending on where we were in the survey concession, south of Luxor. You can't really say this is the one particular thing I want to look at when doing a survey because your goal and task as an archaeologist is to record what is there. And in 2010, I found a Roman 
settlement that had been visited in the early 1900s, but not entirely correctly identified. And that was super exciting, even though it was completely outside of a topic that I had really focused on in, in research. The, the late Roman era between 400 and 600 CE was not something that had something I would have necessarily sought out, but because the site was in the area I was surveying, that was my job to, to record it, and that, that was really awesome. And I've, I've published some of that material and studying the pottery and how this can key into other eastern desert sites of the same era. And then John's expedition has discovered several more sites from the same period in time. So that's been really neat seeing how all of these things connect one another. Is it shocking to you how different archaeology is, has, you know, the line of archaeology has changed so much over and over? It's like, we really don't know anything. We, we think we know something, and then somebody finds another discovery that knocks everything else out of the book. Is that, is that cool, or is that a pain to you? <laughs> I think that there are the basic framework of ancient Egyptian history is very well established from texts and archaeology at, at numerous sites. But I think there are aspects of, for example, the invention of the hieroglyphic script before the discovery of the inscription just north of al Kab. You could reasonably suggest that hieroglyphs were invented for bureaucratic purposes, and they started off fairly small, and they were used in a tomb to label various products that were then deposited uh, in the burial of the ruler. But now that we know they can occur on a monumental scale, that really changes how we see those inventions. So we haven't changed the date of the invention of the hieroglyphic script, but instead we've changed how we understand that process taking place. So I think in a lot of documentaries, and Asian Aliens is, is probably one of the, the worst offenders <laughs> I know. of this, is this emphasis on what we don't know rather than what we know. And yes, absolutely, there is a lot to be discovered, but I think we discover new things by looking in new places, not necessarily trying to second-guess well-established facts in the field. Good. That makes sense. I just, I, I think it's really interesting because I think that um, following through and reading and watching and stuff. I don't like certain shows. That's one I'm not really a fan of. And and that's another thing that's really sad to me. When a lot of stations started, like the History Channel and A&E and all those really positive, great archaeological shows were on those channels. And now they have shows like Ancient Aliens. Um, <laughs> it's sad. <laughs> Um, now, uh, we're coming to the end. Um, my last question is, once the pandemic is over, what, do you have a plan? Do you, uh, are you, do you have any, uh, place you're going? Is, are you continuing something? What's happening after we're free again? 
<laughs> so I really, really look forward to going back to Egypt, continuing archaeological work there, as well as getting to have, getting to attend vintage parties in New York City and other locations in person rather than virtually. So for me, I really look forward to getting back to things as they were. And and I will be content with that. <laughs> it doesn't have to be anything terribly new. Just even back to normal would be lovely. Yeah. Uh, just going out with my friends for a cup of coffee or to go see a movie would be nice. Um, <laughs> little things that you miss like that. <laughs> um, anyway, I want to thank you for taking the time to chat with me. Um, I really appreciate it. For the people who don't know you, could you give your website and any social media that you're on so people can follow you and say hi? Absolutely. So on Instagram, uh, we are at vintage underscore Egyptologist. And to keep it simple, our YouTube channel is also named Vintage Egyptologist. Cool. And um, uh, are you on Facebook, uh, Twitter, any of those others? Nope. Just Instagram and YouTube. Okay. All right. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. And thank you for chatting with Sherry.